uh, me, Alex, and Dan are here with our guest, Ramson Cannon, who, uh, he's a labor lawyer, an activist, a writer, a Twitter guy. Uh, you know, like on Twitter when people have their bio and it has like 10 things in it and they don't do any of them, like, oh, I'm an ornithologist and a dancer and stuff. <laughs> Ramson is like actually that guy who can claim to do all those different things. So, uh, thanks for being here, Ramson. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited to talk about ornithology with you guys. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Name so bird one song. bird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> actually, tw- if you use Twitter, I think uh, you're an ornithologist. Oh, shit. Um, oh that could catch on with people who are like uh coffee snob yeah or just like i dabble in sarcasm yeah chuck wendig guys who try to use the most flowery obnoxious shitty language would start yeah it's epic yeah very epic but um yeah we're not here to talk about birds we're here to just sort of generally talk about the intersection of politics and music um it kind of dovetails nicely from the last episode where we had Will Meneker and we were talking about the MAGA challenge and we were listening to, you know, just like 70 year old uh, grandmas in Kentucky, like spitting their bars over a beat for Trump. Um, and I think that might actually be a good starting point because in in theory, that's like political music, right? But is there really much that's political about that besides that maybe it encourages those people to like donate to Trump? It's not really like that political of an it's act. It's music in it? the service of politics, I guess. Like in the same way, I guess like a like a new Kid Rock album is like in the service of Kid Rock and then whatever political agenda he's bolted himself to, you know? Kid Rock is actually a good example because he had that, I think maybe an album rollout or something a year or two ago where he pretended to run for the Senate without yeah, ever firing. That's right. Just as, I remember like, that a media circus. Like that's another good example of technically it looks like a collision of politics and music, but there's really nothing political about it. It's just purely yeah. cultural. It's a right? collision of marketing and kid rock. But I think um the argument I want to make here kind of expands that outward of even songs that are like fairly expressly political, in my opinion, don't really tend to like accomplish much, right? Like I don't know if there's you guys have any pushback against that or if you agree, but I agree with you. <laughs> I, I, I think I basically agree. I, I was thinking of examples of like, I remember reading a book about when they uh, overthrew Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines and the uh, there was a uh, Tagalog song, Bayan Ko, and like it was a big thing. They would like sing it outside the palace or whatever. Um, you have like people who sing Solidarity Forever or the Internationale or you know, these, these other sort of traditional songs, but it's less about the, I mean, the content is inspiring for all those songs, but like, it seems to me less about the content and more about just the act of doing it together. The fact that a big group of people all know the words, you know? Yeah. It's context. It's contextual too. Like there needs to be a broader political context to be singing the song in that actually like the actual political change happening there is manifesting through the broader political context and whatever. And the song is just kind of like a nice thing that um, binds people. Yeah. Like you're not, you're not going to get a political edge unless you're a teenager, you're not going to get a political education from listening to a song necessarily, but it is a way to, it is a way to channel like a group feeling that, or, or maybe, you know, give form to uh, ambient, unrest or feeling or frustration and that's where i think it's effective but but like as i don't know i keep thinking about green day right (laughs) (laughs) i was just about to bring up green day (laughs) and 
you know, having lived through the Bush era, I wonder how many kids, you know, put the Green Day CD into the CD player in their Prius and or or whatever, you know, and were like, "Oh shit, the war is bad." Yeah, you know, like. I, I I don't think that happened. I don't think it, exactly. Yeah, everyone kind of you either already knew that or you didn't, yeah. and the album didn't exactly persuade yeah. you. Well, George Bush killed himself when that album came it's out. It's true. Yeah, when yeah. he saw it was called American Idiot, he straight up killed himself. He died. It's the dumbest thing you can. They do. They replaced him with a body double. That's one of the most enduring Onion headlines ever. Uh, Green Day reveals that the American Idiot was George Bush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think like. Uh, someone else who comes to mind, uh, when you say Green Day, I don't know why this reminded me of it. Maybe just because it was similar era, maybe. But I, th- I think about like Nas. And like Nas is a guy who his songs that are like specifically political tend to be pretty lame. Do you remember um, he had that song, I Can, um, that sampled the Claire de Lune? Do you remember that song? It was like, I know I can be what I want to be and all that. It was it had like little kids singing on it. Yeah, I sort of I sort of know that. Yeah, one. not like super close. But it, it was supposed to, it was it was basically one of those like I'm gonna name all the problems in the world and like here's how you can rise above them, and it's like widely considered to be one of the corniest songs. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Ever recorded, you know. He had a period where he just got really into the N word. <laughs> like oh, he, he was gonna name his album that, and then he just named it Untitled because they wouldn't let him. <laughs> But I remember listening to the title track and he was just like, it's just a little too much. Yeah, he's actually a good example of a guy who like, he's capable of being a really great artist at, you know, at times. And by at, at times, I mean on his first album. But uh, yeah, he's just so on the nose with it but that, that like it's not very artistic. It undercuts the artistry. Like it's so explicit and lame. That Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, referencing Illmatic, his first record is kind of perfect because when he when he would just be you know talking about day-to-day life in the queensbridge projects and what he experienced and what he saw that's much more political or politicizing to me uh than like like a you know calling bush an idiot or you know being like oh of course you know he had a song called sly fox that was all about fox news that was from that untitled <laughs> that album. That was from the yeah. self-titled, yeah, our untitled <laughs> album. And like, you know, when, uh, I think that's true for a lot of music where it's like a lot of the most politicizing stuff is is the stuff where people are talking about their, people are, w- the thing that will politicize you is hearing about like lived experiences yeah. and hearing like a perspective yep, other no than question. your own rather than someone being like, you know what's bad? Fox News. And I'm going to rhyme Fox News with something. It's a, yeah, the snapshot uh view of someone's life is always more effective i think like there's a band called drive-by truckers that i don't you know i don't love this band by any stretch of the imagination but they have one song called putting people on the moon that for whatever reason is it it totally gets me and it is a political song but it's just a snapshot of this small town and people getting addicted to opiates and uh it's it's great. It's it is a great political song, but I I don't think it's educating people and telling them anything they don't already know. It's just giving voice to something, you know. Yeah, I think music that's good and you could consider political is usually just doing the same thing that other good music is doing, which is like uh provi- providing some kind of like catharsis or yeah, whatever. Yeah. It's not really like it's not like organizing people politically, but it does provide 
um, like an emotional catharsis around like shared ideas or shared experiences or whatever. Yeah. But it's actually something I just thought of that I hadn't even considered before is um, I feel like what about the whole tradition of political songs like have you guys ever heard that Ike for President song from the 50s? <laughs> I was thinking about that too, but I wanted to make sure I just made it up in my imagination. No, like that, some, was, a thing, yeah, that was a thing that happened. <laughs> there was like the video for it where it's like an elephant bouncing along and there's all these children and stuff following him. It's just like, Ike for President, Ike for President. Yeah. That's a banger. That's getting people to the polls. Yeah, well, the Will I Am had that song in 08 that everybody cried about. What was it called? Um... Oh man! Oh, these are all coming back to us, and they're just going to infect our, infect us for weeks. Are you thinking of the earlier one from "Where's the Love"? That one? I don't think so. Maybe um, it was. It had a the video at least had a bunch of like other celebrities in it, um, and it was specifically about Obama. Yes, we can. I don't it, think I know that. It was, song. It was called "Yes, We Can." Oh, oh I remember funny. this now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if I think of like Obama era, will I am, um, it's just another, you know, another like fucking scourge on my mind that now I'm stuck remembering is CNN used to have will I am on as a hologram. Yeah, that's right. For like segments. So <laughs> stupid, man. He is a master of investing in tech companies that immediately go out of business. <laughs> like you can just call will I am on the phone and tell him I invented a faster type of goggles <laughs> that are uh, you can take into space with you, and you he's can the same watch level TV of rapper as he is entrepreneur. Yeah. Was Will I Am ever part of the Zoom Zune campaign? I feel <laughs> I like that's so. there's like a sixty percent chance. Oh, uh, maybe not. Common was definitely uh, doing ads for Microsoft for a while, so I guess maybe he filled that niche. Common's another good example of a guy who's just bludgeoning you over the head with shit. Yeah, Common is Common is a boring, boring dude. There's a Pitchfork review of him that surfaced recently. <laughs> oh, you showed me I, that. I showed you that. I it's saw that like, too. yeah, it's so, so not good. I I can't believe I just saw that. It's like almost as good as the uh, John Coltrane one. Yeah, the the great Pitchfork tradition of basically blackface reviews. I love those reviews so much. They they take up so much of my brain. Why would they purge the Coltrane one and not? I mean, the common one is almost, it's almost as bad. It's not quite as bad, but it's, it's like within spitting distance of the, uh, of the Coltrane one. I just, I don't understand why it's still up on the, on the website. You guys are going to have to school me on this a little bit. What did they do with the Coltrane review? What happened? Why did they purge it? It was written as an old jazz man. Uh, so by a, like a, a white kid. But it, in, he was like, hey, so cat, we was, we was listening to the. Oh, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> The hot yeah, jazz. It's really bad. Like Billy Crystal It's just style. a literally like blackface. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like a blackface review. So because that one was by one of the founders of Pitchfork, they like scrubbed it off the internet and did their best to make it completely unfindable. Mm -hmm. But uh, Alex was recently looking at this common one that's kind of similar. It's not quite as bad because it's not like writing in a dialect, but it's just like some white kid just being like, I learned all about black culture from common, you know, and. Yeah, I, I, be, I used to be suburban, and I became urban now. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, if you really want a good laugh, also, if, <laughs> the lyric I forgot about this, but the lyrics to Will I Am's Yes We Can song are actually just a speech by Obama. Oh, dude. <laughs> with Will and Friends, as it says, singing Yes We Can. 
Yes, we can over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) Was it like a full length song? It's four minutes and 31 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) And that was in. I don't think I ever heard this. People were posting about how, I mean, nascent posting 2008, but people were posting about how like the video, they couldn't watch it without crying. Ooh, oh, um, both Barack Obama and John Favreau have songwriting credits on it. For oh time. shit! And <laughs> all right, Brit- which John Favreau? Oh, the speechwriter. Speechwriter. Yeah. Do you ever think he's like, yeah, I wrote a song with Will yeah. I Am, like at parties? Oh, definitely. They should get them to do something together, the director and the speechwriter. Well, bringing it for yeah. full circle to what we're talking about, uh, the video itself was directed by Jesse Dillon, Bob Dillon's other son. Oh no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just so fucking brutal. Uh. So, I I mean, I guess that answers our question in some way, which is like, dum-dums were really motivated by that song, right? I mean, it did, it, uh, and maybe not just dum-dums, but, you know, there there is a sector of people who will genuinely get motivated by like the corniest pablum possible. Uh, but I guess I'm I'm wondering though, what were they motivated to do? Like, did that song actually get people canvassing or was it just kind of like, I'm already an Obama guy and now I have this dumb song. I, listen to, you know? <laughs> I don't know if it's just that irony levels have shifted, but this is the yes, we can song is as bad as the fight club video in like the, the Hillary Clinton Hamilton song that they did on TV. Oh, right. Oh yeah. And that didn't work. That shit didn't work at all. Maybe it's no. a, maybe it's a similar thing to like um, the 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 Buttigieg dance, which is that it's just like a it's like a th- it's like a thing to create like an in group. It's just like another piece of in group culture. Yeah, it's definitely already for the initiated. Yeah, so, so people can more I, strongly identify with whatever the thing is. I don't think the people creating it are aware of that. I think they, I think there's a specific type of stupidity that. <laughs> that uh, you have to have to think that dumping what I'm assuming is a bunch of money into into making a Will I Am Jesse Dillon John Favreau Obama <laughs> collab <laughs> is gonna is gonna move the needle in any direction like uh, it just it's it seems uh, oblivious and and vain you know in a lot of ways yeah it's not it's not gonna it's not gonna do any political education for sure yeah. One thing I wanted to talk about that I I remembered while I was walking over to the studio that's kind of like close to my personal interests is uh, the U.S. government's, uh, specifically the CIA's belief that um, pro-democratic hip-hop in Cuba was going to be an agent of regime change. I don't know if you guys ever heard about this story. No, no. It's really interesting. It's basically... uh, Back in the 90s, there was a movement in Serbia, uh, an anti-Milosevic movement, which was a, it was sort of put out as a grassroots movement, but it definitely had, um, it definitely had backing or, you know, interest and interaction with the CIA. Uh, it was called Otpor, and it was run by this guy, uh, Serja Popovic, who's become kind of a figurehead for regime change in the last 10 years. And, and a lot of a lot of the regime changes he was involved with, the, the Otpor-style revolutions, were utter catastrophic failures. Like Arab Spring was, you know, kind of 
based any of the USAID CIA involvement was based around like Otpor's manual. And they started a music festival called Exit Fest, which is now like a legitimately, you know, it's a non-political huge music fest now in Serbia, but it had its roots in a in in Otpor. And a few years back, the CIA decided to uh <laughs> to work with a bizarre agency group uh, in, in uh, Cuba, a, a sort of uh, anti, anti-government agency group. They're kind of like a PR marketing firm oper- operating out of Florida. And they hired uh, this guy, Ryko Boisich, who is an original Otpor member and like the marketing director of Exit Festival. They sent them there to work with the Cuban rap band and essentially set up like a social media network for dissidents and use the rap band to affect regime change in Cuba. And of course it was a total fucking failure. He was being surveilled by Cuban intelligence the entire time. Uh, They just kind of let him set up these networks, Uh, a festival in Cuba that he set up. And then when he was leaving to go back to Serbia at one point, they just arrested him and took all of his hard drives, his computer, like everything, all of the information, kicked him out of the country. And the government then sort of took the networks that he had built and used them for their own, you know, whatever. They, they took over the festival that he had set up. Uh, <laughs> they purged the, the social media network that he had set up. Um, but it's funny to me, like it was, it was a three or four year long operation and they pinned all of this on, they pinned all their hopes on this Cuban rap band. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. It's like Looney Tunes shit, you know? I, I do think that outside the U.S. that their mu- music as a sort of like galvanizing thing can maybe be more relevant, maybe be more possible. I was thinking about, uh, when you mentioned Cuba, it made me think of... Um, going to butcher his name, but uh, Juan Manuel Serrat, who's a Catalan musician in Spain. Yeah. And is was like, very, his music was like somewhat political. He was very political, but even the choice to sing in Catalan uh, was like a political act that was like very inspiring to the Catalan independence movement, you know, in and around Barcelona. Um, and then when he would sing in Spain, in Spanish, the Catalans would get mad at him. Um mm-hmm. I think um, he was exiled to Mexico, or he had to stay in Mexico because it was a, because he in, in some of his songs he criticized the death penalty or something, um, and, and was criticizing Francoist Spain, um, and uh, so and, and you know we can think of I'm sure we could come up with other examples of like folk musicians or individual sort of singer songwriter types who were sort of like considered like the bards or the you know songbirds of some particular uprising or or revolution or something um but that that doesn't really that i guess that that's that's still more so like uh having like a galvanizing effort on people who already agree with you rather than moving people just as a vehicle for educating people it just doesn't seem like yeah uh, that well here's maybe something interesting to to dive into of um if you compare like the catalan singer with um, Pete Buttigieg's high hopes dance. <laughs> yeah, um, appropriate. Like, Good. what is, what is the um, 
Like what trait separates those two? Because I am inclined to see the former as being like somewhat more um, politicized in like a meaningful way. But what, if any difference is there, I guess. Just the fact that political stakes are uh, higher there at the moment. self-aware, maybe a self-awareness that doesn't seem to be there in the Buttigieg. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Malta and Catalonia used to be united under the crown of Aragon in the Middle Ages. So there's what they have in common. Like the Lord of the Rings guy? <laughs> yeah, that, that yeah. guy. <laughs> ah, Aragon, yeah. <laughs> the elvish kingdom of Catalan. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's. I guess the the one thing it would be that the stakes were higher. It was Franco as Spain, um, and uh, but the, the stuff like the the fucking Will I Am song or or the Eminem battle raps like, to Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, it's just like uh, the the there are no stakes really. I'm not sure why, but there just aren't because I don't know our culture, American culture, just, just like doesn't. Maybe because the culture, because there is no culture under the pop culture, or there's very little culture under the pop culture. Uh, it's just pop culture. So it just gets like, I don't know, consumed and disposed of. Whereas like, you know, the the question of like the language of Catalan is, uh, I don't know, very old. It's like a very old fight that's that has been happening in that region. So the act of singing yeah. in one language versus the other um, would have a meaning that it's like, it's hard to think of what any analogy would be in a place like the U S I think too, maybe like there has to be political stakes to the act of performing the music where maybe one example is like pussy riot, where I don't even think anyone like really likes their music that much for the music's sake. It's just that they get in trouble for the mere act of performing it and stuff. So like their music is politicized by the stakes it's not even about the music. It's just like the act of doing it, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a pretty fair assessment with that band. <laughs> yeah, their music is not very good. Yeah, exactly. But I think that maybe their example kind of helps to tear apart like the political side from the cultural side of like something like the Pete Buttigieg High Hopes dance is purely cultural <laughs> because there's no stakes to it. You're not gonna, yeah. Like Donald Trump's not going to throw you in jail yeah. for doing the high hopes dance. The only, the only stakes is just personal shame, but <laughs> yeah. you know, if you have no self-awareness, then you're then you're totally free. Right. In that way. Or if you wear like a badge of honor, which is like the whole thing now, which is like I, yeah. the very fact that you all are calling me a dipshit for doing X thing is like makes me I'm going to do it so hard now because yeah you know that just because you know I, I i wear your scorn as a badge of honor was was the last sort of was the last individual song to get that like that much rage or fury in the u.s cop killer by ice t's uh what are they called again <laughs> body count yeah body count. maybe so yeah. you're right like that era of like the first era of gangster rap did have some stakes to it where like people were kind of hysterical. Well, there was a total would, moral panic around it that was yeah. like, like kind of similar to the moral panic around the, uh, like the satanic panic thing around metal in the early eighties, but way darker and more racially motivated and just gross. <laughs> Is the reason that that's sort of died down because it's harder to understand rap now? Because <laughs> of mumble rap? Too much? They just can't understand the lyrics? 
I think that it eventually got too self ref like like something like Odd Future is a good example where Odd Future tried to do that like burn shit, fuck school, whatever. But it was just kind of like people are tired of it. Everyone's seen it before. Yeah. And it's not like uh, representative of like their lived experience. It's just kind of like sensationalist, I guess. Yeah, I don't think music is a form that where you can where you can terrify people in power or or even worry people in power or or shock shock people, you know? Like I just I don't I don't think that yeah, exists I agree. anymore. I, th- I think that I'm er- thinking now, you know how like conservatives sometimes write like alternate history novels about how like persecuted they are and stuff. Oh yeah. I'm uh, like Jerry Pornell. Uh, yeah. Big, big, a lot of those like weird, uh, 80 sci-fi writers were complete reactionary, like libertarians or almost fascists, you know? Yeah. Now I'm imagining like that, um, phenomenon, but from the perspective of like a Pete Buttigieg supporter <laughs> where like, you know, four years from now, Buttigieg supporters are in jail and they're like signaling to each other with the high hopes dance to show that they're like on the inside and they're part of this revolutionary movement. What was the last song to make Donald Trump mad directly? Was it Donald Trump by Mac Miller? I think so. And the only reason it was on his radar was because his name was the title. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all he was mad about was that he mentioned him. It wasn't like Mac Miller's else, dead know? now and he's alive and well. So look who won that one. Did Trump tweet about Mac Miller dying? I don't know. That would have been he awesome. He should have. If I was him, I would do it. Just rub it in. Do you guys uh, Do you guys remember last week or the week before? Not really. Yeah, me neither. Not much. <laughs> no. <laughs> but uh, there was Amanda Palmer was in the news uh, again. Uh, you know. Oh yeah, you were telling me about this. She. Uh, I, I won't get into the whole thing, but she basically she she got in a feud with uh, one of the music editors at the Guardian, essentially because she felt like her new album wasn't getting the coverage it deserved, and she put out a whole Medium uh, article or uh, that was written by somebody in her camp, essentially making her look amazing. It's just a PR piece, and. Uh, I was I, she was kind of on my radar because she had she had uh, fired uh, someone that that was working for her who also works for Wolf Parade for bringing up the fact that she was constantly saying the N word on stage and uh, Jesus <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's so wild yeah is uh, there footage of that uh, I believe there is it's a it's a song that she wrote I forget the name of the song but it's it's how come she can do it but Kramer can yeah that's a that's a really good question man. <laughs> It's a double standard. So uh, my coworker and friend Shay, who was tour managing, brought up the was like, "Hey, maybe you might not want to say this uh, on stage." Amanda Palmer uh, fired her and then threatened to sue her for defamation. <laughs> and uh, as all that was going on, I remembered that in 2016 she wrote an article, an op-ed piece for the Guardian, and the title of it was. Uh, Donald Trump will make punk rock great again. Oh my God. <laughs> and she wrote it from her home in Australia. And it was framed by the, the sort of, she, she was like, I'm, I'm really sad I can't go to the women's march, that big march. But I, but I want to say that Donald Trump's presidency will produce the greatest punk rock this nation has ever seen. And I'll be cheering from Australia. And like we all know, that never happened. <laughs> like, it's 
three years later. And it's funny because I, I was thinking about that and then thinking about like uh, just the Bush era and how the Bush era was supposed to, you know, produce this like new school of American hardcore that was like political and engaging and fired people up and that, that also did not happen. So I can't, th- I mean, I, I went to high school, I was in high school in the mid to late 90s. <clears throat> yeah. And like, yeah. Uh, so that was like, punk pop punk was like sort of coming up um you know it was like uh there there was the 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 hip-hop explosion happened around then when it really burst into the mainstream and there was like 10 different hip-hop magazines you know um and all that stuff was going on and like when i think back and like you know backpack hip-hop versus like street hip-hop and all that stuff Mm -hmm. and uh and like when I th- as hard as like there was a lot of political content back then, even though it was like sort of the uh, the um, you know fake prosperity of the Clinton years, um, yeah, and like post Cold War and like I tr- adbusters, right? Like, yeah, the adbusters era. <laughs> yeah, and like the stuff people would like angry, with the exception of groups like the Coup, who actually do have like to my mind like really good political music. Yeah. Um, there was really like they would. I can think of like punk songs. There's a lot of punk songs where they would be like, don't talk about how you're vegan. Cause that's annoying. You know? Um, <laughs> yeah. And shit like that. And you're like, why was this? And people would be like, Oh man, I like that band. They're really political. You know, a lot of stuff about like posers and like yeah. <laughs> shit like that was what people were mad about and making songs yeah. about for some reason, you know, that's a good point. I think the scourge of posers really peaked in the nineties. <laughs> oh, for sure. And then the, the only scourge thing of haters any- peaked in the two thousands. It's the only thing anyone had to worry about. Like, yeah. like, uh, yeah, like, like you were saying, the Cold War was over. Uh, it was the end of history. We didn't have to worry about, you know, uh, scarcity or anything. So we just had to worry about who was being a poser in the scene and call them out for it. That was literally it- everybody's biggest concern. Yeah. And, What's oh, the 2010s equivalent? The 2010s equivalent. Huh. That's a good um, question. Oh, well, I know what it is. So uh, 90s, you had posers. 2000s, you had haters. Right now, you have fake friends. Clout sharks? Uh, Clout sharks, sharks, fake friends, all of them. Like like Instagram. They're all just trying to get a piece. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. The clout shark is essentially a new breed of phony. A phony who wants something from you. (laughs) A parasitical phony you know parasitic phonies there's a good band name yeah Yeah, like like punk bands would be like oh you have all these patches on your leather jacket but like you've never seen any of those bands and now it's like you know you have all these like (laughs) you know pictures on your instagram but you you've never really like eaten that meal i guess or like been to that place or whatever um it's just recapitulating the same thing although now we actually have shit to worry about this is true. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they did back then too, but they didn't Dude, realize. I fucking, I fucking hate posers, man. <laughs> we need to go back to, uh, to, to just calling out posers all the time. Yeah. Yeah, let's organize like a substantive political movement around anti-poser ideology. <laughs> yeah. If I see a poser, a hipster, an emo, or a ghetto thug... Uh, I'm gonna lose my shit. I can't deal with it. All those things you just mentioned about scene kids. You know, I'm I'm imagining all of those uh, people coming together for like a uh, 2020 era village people. One day a real rain's gonna come and wash all the posers off the street. You know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. Like, I think we're all basically in agreement about like the bigger picture here of um, 
like the political content when when there is political content to music, it's basically outside of the lyrics, and it's really like the broader social context and stuff, you know. Yeah, I think that's true. Seems... Even even like Cop Killer, which which was a huge firestorm, and like they had to reissue the record without that song on it. I think they did. Yeah, that's right. And, and like, but you know, so you know, so what? Like Ice T like made slightly less money because of it. Like you know, and in the long run, probably didn't. Probably made more money just because the uh, visibility yeah, the gained. Controversy it. sells. Yeah, and 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 so like. And and that was a hugely controversial song. It's the it's the one song where like the lyrics themselves that I can think about, like caused that much of a public firestorm. And like the end result was, I mean, Ice T plays a cop or played a cop. I don't know if he's still doing that. You know, on TV, like on the most beloved TV show um, series or franchise. So like even even when, uh, and, and you know that's an expressly political song. But like even when the lyrics are expressly political, like the there's just for whatever reason, there's just, you know, that song didn't change anybody's mind about whether or not to kill cops. And yeah. <laughs> it, 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 you know, the, the long-term effects is that they didn't throw iced tea in jail, you know? Um, but you could see that if, if somebody were to, if a group of people were to start singing that song or if somebody were to perform that song at like a blue lives rally matter, rally blue lives matter rally, uh, you know, the context would obviously, make it much different. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's even like when, when Kendrick Lamar did, um, he performed all right when he was standing on a burning cop car, it made Fox news really mad, but like the broader context of it was just some awards show where it wasn't particularly like subversive to do even, you know? Right. What was the, um, Donald Glover or childish Gambino video? That- uh, oh yeah. This, this is, is America. America. Yeah, that thing kind of disappeared immediately. Yeah, that's that's because the song itself was bad, but the video was cool, you know. Yeah, totally. That's totally right. Um, people, yeah, people were picking apart that video like frame by frame. You when know? I'm trying to think of the last time like a song has been outright banned by a government in the West, you know, like. Well, one thing we haven't mentioned is kind of like after 9/11 when a bunch of songs were taken off the radio for a while and other songs had their titles changed. Like Jimmy Eat World's Bleed American had to be changed to just bleed. Yeah. Uh, famous Canadian uh, post-punk band Hot Hot Heat had their song Bandages removed from uh, play in uh, commercial radio stations in the States. Because the victims had to use bandages? <laughs> That's right, man. <laughs> Um, was it the coup who had to, who had an album that came out with a picture of a guy blowing up the Twin Towers on 9-11? Oh shit, you may be right about that. Yeah, that was good luck. <laughs> that was very fortunate. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't, like the, if, it had, if it had come out like a month earlier, they might've gotten in trouble for it. But since it came out that day, like you can't really say anything. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they were neither plotting it or, yeah. Or, or mocking it. When Jay-Z released the blueprint on 9-11, I don't know why he was never interrogated about what was the blueprint of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> was the blueprint how to do 9-11? Because if so... Was it where to, uh, you know, affix the C4 to blow up the uh, the buildings from the uh, inside? Young Hove, uh, also known as the 21st hijacker. <laughs> there was a song... Um, 
this is way i mean i was a little kid when this happened but there was a song by a band called the mentors uh the the mentors were like a, a shock rock band oh yeah they're involved the the dude uh the singer's name is El, El Duce, right? Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, they had a song called Golden Showers that a member of Congress read the lyrics out loud. <laughs> That's so cool. To, during some hearing uh, to Frank Zappa. <laughs> he was like, Mr. Zappa, do you approve of this? And the lyrics were, you know, fucking disgusting. Uh, <laughs> um, but there's like a hilarious audio clip you can find of this, this like, you know, uh, Peckerwood congressman reading these lyrics out loud. It's yeah, that's so good. It's interesting to me the like the way that different states deal with uh, or dealt with. I'm not sure if it's still a thing any anywhere anymore, but dealt with what they consider to be like subversive or potentially destabilizing music. You know, like in America, they would outright ban it, or I guess in the '60s, have intelligence services surveil people in bands and amass files on them like probably pretty boring files like <laughs> and and then i'm thinking of like in in yugoslavia uh in the 1970s the punk movement when the punk movement started up there was this band uh perlavo kajalishte they're like the first punk band in yugoslavia and tito got a brief on this band and one of his cultural attaches was basically saying this is a problem. There's this new youth movement. Uh, they're anti-government. And his response was to basically be like, sign them to the state record label and give them a ton of money and let's support this whole thing. Yeah. So the, the, the end result was Yugoslavia had, uh, like, objectively, the one of the best post-punk scenes in Europe for a good half decade, and all of it was completely funded by the state, which they were singing about on their albums. <laughs> They just completely sub, uh, sublimated it into the culture, you know? That's not actually that different from the U.S., though, where if you make, like, some kind of anti-capitalist music that gets popular enough, you can just sign to a major private company label and create a bunch of private profit for capitalists who own that label, right? Like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's like the mirror image of it. Yeah. That's kind of the, the maybe that's the, the sort of difference or like the secret weapon or something is that there isn't really any state censorship in the US. So it's like those pop punk bands that had songs about, I don't know, posers or even the ones that had like explicitly political songs like uh, there was a band called Propagandi. Um, oh, yeah, Canadian. Yeah, the members Great of band. whom some of them I think went on to be in the weaker vans, which yep. might be better known to the audience. But, um, pro, you know, Propagandi had a lot of like, very political songs um but like you know not a lot of very many people heard about them you know they were on fat records um and and like the the stuff that does get popular like you're saying charles is like then it you know then those those bands sort of get anesthetized by the money and the uh you know becoming part of like some corporate entity and, and structure over time so it's like the lack of repression makes everything maybe less dangerous and sexy. So people just can, it, it just gets ignored or yeah. co-opted. Yeah. There's also a lower, the ceiling is lower on sticking to your principles than it is on selling out your principles, I guess. Right. Like, I guess this gets back to the old thing of sellouts and posers, but like <laughs> if you're making like an anti-capitalist song and you like, if you want everyone to hear it, then you got to sell it to 
a major label or someone who's going to really promote yeah. it. I mean, Whereas if you want to stick to the principle of that, you're going to stay at this sort of middle level and you'll never go yeah. over it. We're, we're basically describing the existential crisis of the 90s, of most 90s bands. You know, where yeah, totally. aside from being mad at posers, the biggest crime you could commit was like capital S selling out, whatever that meant, you know? There was that song. Steal this album, System of a Down. Oh, yeah, right. I had that. Sony Records. <laughs> Didn't Real Big Fish have a song called Sell Out? Yeah, they did. Yep. Damn. And it was ironic, get it, guys? Because they had sold out. <laughs> <laughs> they were owning it. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> what a stupid fucking decade. Uh, they didn't even sell out yeah. for that much, really. Yeah. yeah. yeah th uh, of any, like... Any decade in like living generations' memory, the 90s is the one that's going to age the worst compared to how people saw it then. Like everyone knew the 80s sucked, right? Like even yeah. during the 80s, you had like, you know, Gordon Gecko shit where you're like, oh, these people suck, you know? But in the 90s, people really thought a lot of that shit was good and it all sucked. <laughs> it sure did. A truly abominable decade, yeah. Really, just a lot of shit. Yeah. Across the board, like music, literature, uh, uh, not all film, but <laughs> actually, on the subject of selling out, um, we got plenty more stuff to go get to here. But I kind of want to end the episode here and then continue behind a paywall so we can sell out and make people go on Patreon to hear the rest of what we have to talk about. <laughs> um, I think we should sort of pivot to talking more about like. Uh, the way that personal experiences can be politicizing around, like the personal experiences you have with music or being a musician can be politicizing. Um, but in order to play out this main episode, I want to make myself eat shit. Like after I've talked about how lame political songs and lyrics are, I want to play us out with like a nominally political song here. So Ramson's thanks for stopping by. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me guys. All of the manners they memorize so well Never did hold up in court Tried for their natural childhood whims On charges evaded by their better off friends Might be best to lay low On the streets where they preach a 